Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. The world of the strange has always held a certain draw. The pull of a mystery, the intrigue of a natural obscurity, or the exciting twists of the unexplained. This market was heavily seized upon in typical bombastic fashion in America during the 19th century when the art of the humbug was refined, polished, and displayed on a grand stage by the likes of P.T. Barnum and his museum of magic, conjuring, and social, cultural, and natural oddities. In 1869, a new chapter in the pantheon of the strange was freshly penned with the discovery of a 10-foot-tall petrified human giant on a farm in Cardiff, New York. As one might expect, all was most definitely not what met the eye, and the saga would, if nothing else, slot right in as suitably bizarre. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Dark Histories, Season 4, Episode, I don't know, 8, I think. I hope this phones you all very well. Today's episode is a really fun one. Um, It's kind of interesting in that I generally tend to keep Dark Histories episodes, or try at least, to keep Dark Histories episodes like varied to, to a certain degree. Like There's a few kind of subjects that we tend to focus on, right? Like I tend to do kind of paranormal episodes and kind of true crime episodes and mystery episodes and, and that kind of thing and, and and try and kind of juggle it around a bit. And this is an episode that I've wanted to do for a really long time, but I've not quite been sure how it's going to fit or if it's going to fit at all. So I didn't really kind of do it. It always felt like it wasn't the right time. But just more recently, I just kind of got into it a bit more, kind of was feeling it a bit. So yeah, I, I I did it and it, actually I thought it slots in just fine and it was really fun to do. So I do really hope that you'll enjoy it. It's it's a fun episode, I think, and a really good one. So yeah, let's crack on with that. But first and foremost, as always, I want to give a very big thank you to all the new patrons. Um, just a big shout out and say thank you, you know, to, for helping me to make the show, basically. Um, so we've got a massive thank you to uh, Alistair, Brooke, Monroe, Adile, David, Dave, Tremaine, Heather, Heidi, Cara, Jamie, Richard, Aquiline, Gary, Greg, Karen, Els, Tom, Claire, Simon, Amanda, JR. I don't know if I should read your surname, so we'll just call you JR. Uh, Juliet, Stephanie, Ridian, and Lucinda. So thank you very, very much for jumping on board. It's, it's, Say a massive help keeps the show going, and thank you to everyone who supports the show. Whether you be, a, you know, a long-term patron that's been there since the start, or you know, like a relatively new patron, or you know, even if you're just someone that listens to the show and you know might leave a review or chuck it out on social media, because that's equally a massive support. Because you know, anyone that's listened to a while knows that I'm absolutely useless at self-promotion. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm really bad at sharing the show. So, you know, I, I owe a lot to, to you all who have shared the show. So thank you very, very much for that. Anyway, let's crack on with this episode. Say so it's a lot of fun. I hope you're going to enjoy it. It's called The Cardiff Giant and the Great American Humbug. The 19th century was a rough time for the Bible in America. It was a century that saw great change in belief systems and spiritual philosophies, brought about by the equally rapid and largely advancing leaps in the natural sciences that challenged intellectual thought and social behaviours. New academic fields in geology and archaeology posed refreshed questions in the age of the earth, sparking debate on the content of the biblical book of Genesis. In the latter half of the century, Charles Darwin helped to spearhead the questions and 
the perceptions of the public of themselves as humans, as the theory of evolution was introduced, expanded upon, and then exploded into the public sphere on a wider scale with the publication and subsequent promotion of his work on evolution on November the 24th, 1859. Whilst not being a great shock amongst the educated classes who had debated much of the content for the previous half century, it was still a barrier-bending text in many circles, not least the American religious rural communities that could not avoid the book's bestseller status. Darwin's books sold out editions routinely before they were even printed and totaled over 100,000 sales by the end of the century. In America specifically, the Civil War had been the start of a bleak period for a nation dealing with fresh divisions. In the post-war period, newspapers were filled with stories of assassinated presidents, economic decline and depression, and great migratory upheaval as cities prospered in the wake of the Industrial Revolution whilst rural communities found their populations diminishing, their feelings of being cut off, left behind and irrelevant in a strange new world growing exponentially. If this wasn't difficult enough, religion itself began turning against its own teachings, as modernists began reinterpreting and recategorizing the biblical word in order to have it jive in the emerging world. Some modernists sought to go even further by revising and discarding entire passages central to biblical history in their teachings. In retaliation, other biblical scholars took it upon themselves to declare the inspiration for the Bible as the infallible and errant word of God. Groups like the Millenarians and the Adventist movement sprang fresh roots, teaching the truth of the second coming, and they too saw themselves grow in popularity, as those seeking to push back against the rapid change latched onto the coattails of the loudest on their own side of the argument. Whilst Darwin himself hated religious controversy and, and many esteemed men of science and academia of the day were deeply religious, it was a time of great contradictions and juxtapositions if nothing else. To the rural communities, Darwinism, political shock and the new natural sciences threatened the old ways of thinking, whilst the industrial revolution and economic hardships physically challenged the older ways of living and being. On a grander scale, the entire American view of life was undergoing a hard tilt in a new direction, and there were those who were on board for the ride, but many, many more who looked only to reinforce their memories of a world that was drifting over the horizon behind them. One rather unlikely consequence of all of this was the imagining of the great American humbug. Popular in Europe, the exhibition of absurdities, freaks and oddities for entertainment and passed off as a challenge to the public's perception saw itself reimagined on a new American scale and always with an element of fantastical and manipulative marketing, if not just simple straightforward fraud. As the market for humbuggery opened its doors, plenty of people willingly stepped through to make a buck from those who would pay to reinforce a long-held but confidence-stricken worldview. In the same way that fundamentalism was flourishing in a void of security, the humbug found itself a hungry new demographic. Founded unceremoniously by John F. Card when he built his general store on old Onondagan land in 1835, Cardiff was situated in Onondaga County, New York, laying around 12 miles directly south of the city of Syracuse, not far from the northern border of the Great Lakes springing out from the vast swathes of forested hillsides into a smattering of farmhouses popped up in the open expanses of green fields. Despite its small population, its proximity to Syracuse and its position on the state road meant that business had been good in the small town and it had grown exponentially to line the main road that scored through the middle of the farmlands and marked the hamlet on the map. Between 1850 and 1860, the sparse offering of buildings had grown to include two stores as well as a blacksmith, cider shop, hotel, medical practice and photographic studio that people passing through on the way to Syracuse could visit to spend some money and have their image taken in front of a variety of backdrops and shabby props. The People's Store, built by Robert Parks in 1835 and owned by the Card family, was the main hub for local dry goods, groceries, shoes, paints, oils, drugs and medicines though just about everything in the store was sold at such a premium that locals would often make the trip to Syracuse themselves in order to buy at more amenable prices. 
The store owner, one of the four Card brothers who each ran the business, would travel to Syracuse every day to bring back the papers and sell to the farmers and local American Indian population in the nearby reservation. The morning of Saturday the 16th of October, 1869, was crisp and cool. The state of New York had been enjoying a relatively pleasant autumn with average temperatures for the past week around 55 Fahrenheit or 12 degrees centigrade. After sunrise, Henry Nichols had woken, got dressed and left his house to walk up to Newell's farm, a small farmhouse owned by William Newell on the outskirts of Cardiff, where he worked on occasion as a labourer. On his way to the farm, Nichols stopped off to meet up with Gideon Emmons. Emmons was an old Civil War vet who had lost his arm on the battlefield and now found himself scratching around for manual work where he could find it. Usually, when someone took pity on him and had work that wasn't too physically demanding. Today, the pair had been employed by William Newells to dig a new well on his farm, where they had arrived shortly before 8am. They greeted the Newell family in the farmhouse, William Newell, his wife Lydia and their young son William Jr. And then William took them round the back of the main barn to a large open expanse of marshland where he planned to have them dig his new well. He picked out a good spot and suggested they dig about four feet down to hit a good supply of water. Nichols commenced digging, whilst Emmons, not much of a digger with his one arm, went about collecting the stone from the adjacent fields to line the well. Newell left the men to the task and went back to the farmhouse to meet up with John Parker, another labourer who had come up to help with the build, and the pair began carting stone down to the site. Later that morning, a fourth labourer, Smith Woodmansey, arrived to chip in with the backbreaking work. As noon approached, the well was coming along and Nichols had dug out around two and a half feet of damp earth when the head of his shovel hit something in the ground. As he foraged around in the slushy mush pit by his feet, he saw what looked to be a human foot appear from beneath the marshy soil. Instinctively, he called out to the nearby workers, calling them over to see what he'd found. Recollecting back the history of the land, he declared that he'd found an old Indian buried in the soil. The whole area, centering on nearby Syracuse, had once belonged to the Onondaga tribe, one of the five nations of the Iroquois that had populated the area until the Americans had settled in the 18th century. Anything buried that deep in the ground, reasoned Nichols, must surely be as old as the Indians. If Newell had wanted to keep the potentially problematic find quiet, he was quickly ridden over as Woodmansey, spying a passerby in a horse and cart, called out, They found a man's foot down here. Promptly, the driver of the horse and cart pulled over to investigate. The traveller was a man named John Haynes, a local who was on his way to a fair in Syracuse, but spying the much more interesting situation at the bottom of the well, he opted instead to jump into the pit and begin helping Nichols to dig out the body. Meanwhile, Newell had his own private concerns. When he had bought the farm, an old owner had told him a story of finding a straight-edged razor tucked away inside a hollow tree stump in the same field. He hadn't given it a great deal of thought at the time, but now it came back to suggest the very real possibility that it could have been a murder weapon and they were potentially uncovering a very dark moment of local history indeed. Due to the fair in Syracuse, the road that passed by the farm was busy that Saturday and it didn't take long for the discovery to draw a crowd as more and more people chose to pull over and see what the commotion was about rather than passing by. By the early afternoon, a sizeable crowd had gathered round the hull that had now widened to reveal what was clearly the shape of a human body. This body, however, had some pretty unusual features. Primarily, it was far larger than an average man. As they dug around the body, the true size became evident, and as it became obvious that it lay around 10 feet in length, excitement stirred over the ever-expanding group of onlookers. As the men continued to dig, Muddy water slopped around their feet inside the pit and it became clear to Newell that the situation was far from ideal. He began making plans to remove the body of the giant, but soon realised time was not on his side. As dusk fell over the farm, he opted instead to stand guard over the pit for the night and deal with the mysterious contents under the fresh light of the morning sun. Clear that no more was going to be uncovered for the day, the crowd slowly drifted away, but before heading home, Many members stopped over in hotels and inns to spread the word about what they had seen that afternoon. 
word of the giant began spreading fast, and this was considerably rushed along when a man named Silas Forbes paid a visit to the offices of the local newspaper, the Syracuse Daily Standard, to clue them in on the find. The next morning, as Newell, dishevelled and tired, pulled himself up from the pit after a long night of standing guard, the usually quiet farmhouse saw itself inundated with locals who had either been on the farm the day before or heard of the stories that they passed through the local establishments. People from the local villages and towns of Lafayette and Tully were quick to show up soon after, and by that afternoon, visitors from as far away as Syracuse were arriving at the farm, keen to confirm the stories they heard that bounded through the local population. Hearing of the news on the local reservation, members of the Onondaga tribe also showed up to see what was happening. They had heard the rumours that the giant was an old Indian and referred back to the mythological tribal folklore of the Stonecoats, a giant of Iroquois legend with a skin of rock that could repel weapons, and they wanted to see for themselves. They quickly distanced themselves from the find, though, as one pointed out that the man in the hole was clearly of Caucasian appearance. That afternoon, too, saw the first visit to the farm from local doctors, Eugene Kukendall, Eliza Park, Henry Darner and Mira MacDonald all showed up to offer their expert opinion on the origins of the man, and climbing down into the wet pit, they each took a casual glance over the filth-coloured rock-like form, half-steeped in muddy water, and agreed that the giant was most certainly the petrified remains of a man. This was enough to cause a stir from the onlookers, not least because the man was naked and therefore quite undignified. An improvised covering was placed over the giant's genital-free groin and a level of calm restored. The doctor's confirmation, however, was quite something. If the stone was that of a giant human, where had he come from? For many, their only experience of the concept of giants came from the book of Genesis. One did not need to have read too far into the Bible to have discovered the Nephilim, the mighty ones of old times, a result of angels breeding with human women who had roamed the land before the great flood had wiped out everything that Nara had not bothered to rescue on his boat. It was, therefore, a logical leap to assume that if the giant was not of Indian origin, he may well have been from an ancient race, and just as likely from biblical times. As the doctor pulled themselves from the pit, and theories and conjecture began to swell through the crowd, two reporters from Syracuse, acting on the story that had come from Silas Forbes the night before, showed up at the farm to snag the exclusive for themselves. At around the same time, local doctor, prospector and inventor John Boynton also showed up, offering to give his own opinion on the giant. Boynton was a well-respected figure in the community, an early leader of the Latter-day Saint movement, though by now excommunicated by the group, and the inventor of the soda fountain, portable fire extinguishers and various other electrical household items He had worked for the government as both a scientist, where he helped to invent torpedo technology, and as a geological surveyor in California. After his government duties were over, he had extensively toured the United States, lecturing on natural history and geology. Having the opinion of such an esteemed scientist on his side was a bit of a coup for Newell, who, by now, was fielding several offers from local businessmen looking to buy the giant from him, so he naturally jumped at the chance for Boynton to get involved. The crowd watched on with bated breath as he jumped down into the hole, bent over the stone man, and licked his face. Ever an eccentric, he was a man of action, but it wasn't without some scientific purpose, and after he slopped about in a pit for a further few minutes, touching and sniffing the exterior of the find, he declared confidently that the giant was not the remains of a petrified human at all. It was, he had decided, a man-made statue carved from local limestone. The crowds who had stood and watched his odd behaviour, licking and sniffing what they were by now convinced was a dead ancient giant human, gave his conclusion a short shrift. Science be damned, they knew what they could see with their own eyes, and they didn't need a cranky latter-day saint to tell them otherwise. Despite having been kicked out long ago, his association with the group was still a stain against his reputation for many. Boynton took Newell aside and asked if he could have the statue, As a man of science, he reasoned, he would be interested in and capable of finding out all about its origins. Newell wasn't likely to just give the giant away, however, but holding his cards close to his chest, 
He chaired the offer and Boynton agreed to return the next day to fence the pit off in order to protect it from the ever-growing crowd that were eager to catch a glimpse of the ancient giant. The next day was Monday and with the new week came the first of what was to become a long saga of stories in the local papers concerning the giant. The headline that sat on the front page of the paper boldly stated, A new wonder, petrified giant. The story was quickly picked up by all the local papers and those that had failed to send their own reporters relied on the words of the men and women who had made up the crowds from the weekend. This forenoon, I visited a farm near Cardiff to obtain from personal inspection all that would be of any use to you relating to the petrified giant which has been discovered there. The fossil was found about three feet below the surface while digging for a well. The soil is a sort of bluish clay mixed with quicksand and black loam and contains body specimens of organic remains. The giant lies in a very easy and natural position, horizontal, partly on the right side, with a right hand placed on the bowels, the left as though once lying on the hip and afterwards falling off by his back. Everything so far as discovered is in a complete state and entire. The petrified substance seems to be silicate of lime, the crystals being beautifully arranged. The dimensions that I took are these, Crown of head to hollow of foot, 10 foot 2.5 inches. Crown of head to tip of chin, 1 foot 9 inches. Length of nose, 6 inches. Width of nostrils, 3.5 inches. Width of mouth, 4 inches. Point to point of shoulder, 3 feet. Point of hip to knee joint, 3 feet. Diameter of calf leg, 9.5 inches. Diameter of thigh, 1 foot. Length of foot, one foot seven and a half inches, width of palm, seven inches, diameter of wrist, five inches. It has been visited today by hundreds from the surrounding country and examined by physicians and they assert positively that it must have been once a living giant. The veins, eyeballs, muscle, tendons of the heel and cords of the neck are all very fully exhibited. It certainly is one of the connecting links between the past and the present races and of great value. One thing was for sure, the article had not been wrong concerning the value of the find. Newell, sniffing out a winner, was quick to cotton onto this idea too. He hired his neighbours to help him further dig out the hole around the giant, installed a pump to dispose of the muddy water and erected a large tent over the top of the whole thing and he then employed the local storekeeper, Billy Hewton, as a guide to entertain visitors with the story of the discovery. He set the entrance fee at 50 cents and on the first day pulled in over 400 excited customers. By Tuesday, the headlines of the giant had gone national. Papers as far away as San Francisco ran stories with headlines such as The Onanaga Giant, The Lafayette Wonder, and some even went as far as declaring it the eighth wonder of the world. For Newell, the press further threw his farm under a very welcome spotlight. He employed Hewton to take over the running of the hastily put together exhibit whilst he spent the week in meetings fielding offers that reportedly went into the tens of thousands for a share in what was now becoming known unequivocally as the Cardiff Giant. Even the famous P.T. Barnum, America's most famous showman and entrepreneur of the day who, after finding limited success with his grand scientific and musical theatre, stunned the country with the Barnum American Museum in New York City. Always the grandest of showmen, Barnum furnished the roof of the building with a roof garden that overlooked the city and installed a lighthouse lamp to shine out and promote its existence onto the flocking public who visited daily to jump in the hot air balloon rides that launched from the roof and to see the endlessly curious exhibits of freaks, natural oddities and live magic acts. In 1842, he stepped his game up with his lease and exhibiting of the Fiji mermaid a taxidermy creature with the body and head of a monkey and the tail of a fish. Another of his infamous and well-loved exhibits at the time was that of General Tom Thumb, the smallest person that ever walked alone. Tom Thumb was a five-year-old that he had coached to smoke cigars and drink wine and dressed in the clothes of Napoleon. The price of the giant, however, was either too rich for Barnum or the rumours of his interest were just simply not true. But it's a testament to the level of infamy that the giant had gained to even be mentioned in the same breath as Barnum, even amongst rumour. By the end of the week, there were two syndicates and a wealthy business owner, all bidding against one another for ownership of the giant. 
Eventually, the two syndicates decided to team up their bids against the businessman and split shares in the giant, and Newell found the deal for the three-quarter share of the giant, which included a $10,000 down payment, with the promise of a further $20,000 paid from the profits taken from an exhibition, to be perfectly amicable. Newell also retained the final one-fourth share in the giant for himself. The amount of money paid out for the curious stone man might seem absurd, but the final take for that first week had already amounted to a profit of over $1,200 for Newell, as people continued to read about the giant in the press. The story spread far and wide, and scores of visitors continued to flock to the farm to see the fabled creature for themselves. Under new ownership, the giant really couldn't stay at the bottom of a muddy pit on the farm forever, covered by a shabby tent, with visitors given the spiel by a local shopkeep. And so, one of the syndicate's first steps was to give the farm a bit more jazz. They hired Joseph H. Wood, owner of the Randolph Street Museum in Chicago and Philadelphia, who specialised in exhibiting exotic taxidermy to replace Hutton as the tour guide. They also invested heavily in aggrandizing the entire layout of the farm, buying a larger tent, a shinier fence and a massive American flag to fly by the entrance. They also set up new rules for visitors, including a maximum viewing period of 15 minutes to aid in the churn, which by Sunday the 24th of October was numbering over 2,300 per day. They published a 32-page pamphlet on the exhibition to sell as a souvenir entitled An American Goliath, A Wonderful Geological Discovery. They talked up the original excavation with new, flowery speech and bombastic drama. It was an exciting time for Cardiff, and it wasn't just the giant's owners who were profiting from the previously insignificant Hamlet's newfound fame. Two taverns were hastily erected within a stone's throw from Newell's farm, the first named the Giant Saloon, and the second the Goliath House. Until now, no one had entertained, nor even suggested the idea that the statue could have been a hoax. For the most part, people were on board with the concept that it was a true fossil of a petrified giant. The closest person to avoid scepticism on the find had been Boynton, who had been quickly shrugged off, and now he was back in the press giving his opinion, only with a few subtle differences. Whilst he still remained convinced that the giant was a statue carved from local rock, he now seemed to be authenticating it as at least an ancient relic of great importance. For the press, by and large, they staked their place in the ground, with several calling Boynton out as unqualified to comment and concluding articles with such statements as Let the people who own the giant keep up the excitement and increase the price of admission. In fact, Boynton's theories were probably more welcome to some than the press gave them credit for. He offered up a second narrative for those who were not quite willing to get on board with the biblical giant theory and still reinforced the belief in an ancient Western civilization had once roamed the plains of America, potentially redefining the history of the nation wholesale. Still though, over some time, clear voices of dissent did arise, and on Monday the 25th of October, a letter was published in the Daily Herald that was headlined, The Petrified Giant, A Stupendous Hoax. The letter included witness testimony from one Thomas B. Ellis, a resident of Syracuse, who claimed to know the whole sordid story behind the giant's creation as a hoax. One year ago, about the time of the burning of George Gerard's cabin, a stranger came to the hotel in Tully for a guide to the house of Newell at Lafayette. A wagon and guide were there furnished him. After travelling to within sight of Newell's house, he paid and dismissed his guide and proceeded on foot. This was the last scene of our mysterious stranger. A few days after, some of my informants say two and others three days, a wagon containing a large box 11 feet long was observed to be making its way towards Newell's house. Several voracious witnesses are willing to swear it was Newell's team. Although the letter turned out to be a hoax, the eyewitness reports remained a mysterious curiosity and a constant thorn in the side of Newell. Not helping matters, he had placed his farm up for sale and many took it as a sign of a guilty man looking to do a bunk. The press's news reports put enough pressure on Newell from the Giants' buyers that eventually led him to sign an affidavit swearing that he had no knowledge of the Giant before the day of the well excavation, although it was not connected with any court of law and was not at all legally binding. It offered the new owners some peace of mind. A new clause was also written into the contract on their behalf 
that made any debt of ownership negated and all money returned should the giant be proved a fake within the first three months of their buying. This cut-off for the clause was the 24th of January. The mysterious stranger referred to in the letter was named George Hull, a 48-year-old businessman with a shady past and a poor reputation for trading dodgy horses. It was quickly confirmed that Hull had been in town and that he had been carting a large box, but when he was tracked down and confronted, he insisted that he was only in town to make delivery of a box of machinery for the railroad. His story was not universally accepted, especially given his sketchy past, but when Hull produced a stack of receipts as proof of the cargo, the letter in the paper was dismissed entirely, both by the press and in the public opinion. Newell's reassurances might have given the buyers confidence, but the problem for Newell was that throughout it all, he and Hull had been lying through their teeth. The true story of the giant's origin, sadly for the new owners, lay not in ancient American history, but instead was, according to George Hull, the result of a night drinking in a saloon one night in 1867. At the time, Hull was working as a tobacconist and was visiting the town of Ackley, Iowa, for a business trip when, during a night out, his paths crossed with a Methodist revival preacher named Henry B. Turk. The two got to drinking late into the night and discussing, among other things, the stories in the Bible. Turk, who was a devout Christian, was adamant that giants had existed at one time, as referenced in the Bible, and Hull, who was far less religious himself, debated the possibility long into the next morning. This chance meeting seemed to lay heavy on Hull's mind, who, after returning to his hotel room, could not shake the strength of the man's belief. I lay awake wondering why people would believe these remarkable stories in the Bible about giants, when suddenly I thought of making a stone giant and passing it off as a petrified man. George Hull was an interesting figure, a man with a shady past who had seen himself often cast as something of a social pariah due to his beliefs and quite often fraudulent business schemes, including hawking Mark playing cards. But Hull was no gung-ho, simple-minded criminal. He took an interest in the emerging sciences. He visited lectures and he paid attention to the popular culture. He knew of Darwin and of the interest that his book had stirred in fossils and evolution. And he was aware of Barnum and his exhibition of the Fiji mermaid 27 years prior, along with the unparalleled career that he had gone on to have, including all the wealth and fame that had come with it. Though in his own words, his primary motivation for his inspiration to create the giant was as an atheist looking to make a fool of the religious folk that he viewed as gullible beyond extremes, Holt undoubtedly had more than a casual eye focused towards turning a hefty profit. If his scheme was to work in any capacity, Holt first needed to secure funding to make a reliable fake. He met with a blacksmith and inventor named Henry Martin and pitched his plan, ultimately securing a partner and half of the money needed to purchase the large slab of stone that they would need along with the labour to carve it. For the other half of the money, he burnt down two of his own cigar factories and claimed the insurance. The second problem facing Hull was actually acquiring the stone for the job. He had few contacts in the quarrying industry, and though he had approached several men, he was turned away by owners who had no interest in working with him. During his hunt, he wound up contacting and eventually selling the plan to a Chicago marble dealer named Edward Burkhart. Burkhart was a gem of a find for Hull. Not only did he have the knowledge to quarry the stone, but the workforce and contacts to take care of just about every step of the plan going forward. Burkhart agreed to work with Hull in exchange for equal partnership in the scheme. Utilising their new expertise, the trio rented an acre of land in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and dug out a 6,500-pound slab of gypsum, which Hull then shipped to Chicago, driving the piece of rock 40 miles to the nearest train station by horse and cart. Over the next few weeks, Burkhart's team, marble cutter Frederick Mormon and his assistant Henry Sow, meticulously sculpted the slab into a figure of a giant man, modelled on Hull himself, including tendons, veins, muscle tissue and Adam's apple. They even hammered tiny paws over the giant's skin using a wooden block hammer struck through with knitting needles to pepper the surface with tiny dotted indentations. At first, the statue was complete with hair and beard, until Hull read that hair would not fossilise, at which point he chiselled it all off. The next step was to age the stone. It may look convincing in its form, 
but it needed to look ancient if it was to fool anyone. Holes stained the entire statue with blue ink, doused it in sulfuric acid and carefully sandpapered the entire surface, creating a statue which once finished looked potentially passable at least. Hull researched where Vesta bury his stone and finalised on New York State after he read that geologists were theorising that the state had at one time been a lake and that many fossilised fish and reptiles were being found there. It had also been a relatively hotbed of emergent religious movements over the years, a thought that certainly couldn't hurt. He canvassed the area around Syracuse and approached Newell, securing the farmer as a partner in exchange to bury the statue on his farm and have him dig it up a year later. It took Hull's team, along with Newell, seven nights working under the cover of darkness to get the statue in the ground, and once covered, Newell sprinkled the fresh earth with clover seeds. In total, the whole scheme had taken nearly two years from inception and it had cost the initial investors over $3,000. Now with it in the ground, it was time to wait it out and make it pay. This whole scheme may seem positively audacious, but in the mid to late 19th century, it was really not so much of a risk as it might sound. P.T. Barman had proved decades prior that you could hoodwink the public with a well-made or at least passable for the time fake. And in the very worst case scenario, Hulk could always welcome the inevitable scepticism onto his giant, utilising the tactic that was so well refined by Barnum to invite the public to make their own judgments on the truth of the exhibit, but only after they'd come to see it with their own eyes, and of course paid the price of entry. In fact, in comparison to one of Barnum's most infamous humbugs, the Fiji Mermaid, the Cardiff Giant was positively a top-class project. Barnum's Mermaid had been advertised before its exhibition from a woodblock depiction of beautiful woman with the lower half of a large fish, but in reality, it was the shriveled carcass of a monkey crudely attached to the dried tail of a fish. It was, as one press report put it, the very incarnation of ugliness. Barnum had leased the taxidermy monstrosity, knowing full well that it was a fake. He had had it inspected by a naturalist long before the deal was done, but it was Barnum's skill in marketing, along with his audacity to manipulate public curiosity, that stood him out from the crowd. Hull had taken all of these lessons on board, and so far, his giant creation had been a roaring success. He needed only now to extend that until the 24th of January, and he and his partners were, financially at least, in the clear. Now that the Cardiff giant was under new ownership, the consensus was that the exhibit needed to make some real money something which you could do much better on the road. It was promptly decided that with all the press attention surrounding the find, a national tour should be organised. It would visit states throughout the East Coast, the Midwest, and stretch even as far as California, where a spot in a San Francisco museum was secured. On November the 3rd, before the giant was due to be excavated from its resting place on Newell's farm, a group of scientists, doctors, judges and local ministers were invited to the farm to give their final opinion on the find, and hopefully secure the giant's one final piece of big press hype. The conclusions now reached are that the figure is a giant cut from gypsum, that no known gypsum quarry capable of furnishing a block large enough to work out a figure of the size exists in Onondaga County, that the statue is ancient, and that it is a mystery. On Wednesday, there was a large gathering of scientific men at Cardiff, and they made a careful inspection of the giant and his surroundings. The proprietor offered every facility to see it, and courted the honest criticism of scientific men. There is in this statue food for scientific speculation enough to set all the associations of the world by the ears, and Syracuse, which has been heavy in the convention and ism business for years, has a fresh incentive to exertion in the same line. After the inspection was done, the tent was removed, official photos were taken, and finally the giant was towed up, suspended by a large winch built of solid wooden beams and thick rope pulled by a wagon and four horses. It was then carefully removed from the property and taken to a warehouse in Syracuse where it was to be cleaned, weighed and exhibited on its first stop for the nationwide tour. Before it was placed in the Shakespeare Hall exhibit, its home for the next week, it was paraded through the streets to a fanfare that drew over a thousand spectators. By the end of its tenancy in Syracuse, one week later, it had drawn in between 35,000 and 40,000 visitors, 
each paying one dollar for the privilege. For some, it was now time to cash out. Some of the early investors sold their share in the giant for a few thousand dollars, and Newell himself sold his quarter share for a cool $25,000 to a businessman named John Rankin. Newell had to strike the deal to only accept banknotes as, still unbeknown to the other owners, he had to split the fee with Hull and his team of giant makers. During the giant's exhibition in Syracuse, P.T. Barnum once again took an interest in purchasing the giant for his own museum, reportedly offering $50,000 for one quarter ownership. But, with the giant earning so much, even without the backing of a figure like Barnum, it was promptly turned down. This was a move that would prompt one of the strangest and most absurd chapters in the story of the giant. Not being deterred after having his offer turned down, Barnum instead created his own replica giant, enlisting the services of sculptor Carl Franz Otto to cast a giant from plaster using the official photos of the Cardiff giant as reference. He paid the sculptor $100 per week for three months and put him up in a fancy New York City hotel for the duration as payment. Advertising his giant, he made no reference to the fact that it was a copy. Instead, he fell back on his age-old technique of tossing the question out to the public. A most impressive mystery, the phenomenon of the century, the stone man of Onondaga. Is it a statue? Is it a petrification? Is it a stupendous fraud? Is it the remains of a former race? Amazingly, despite the fact that it was yet another of Barnum's obvious humbugs, the exhibit pulled in huge crowds all the same, likely helped along by the fact that Barnum was rumoured to have paid off the local press to give him favourable reviews. Seeing Barnum's new fake undermine his potential profit in a city that was close to coming up as a stop for the real fake Cardiff giant, the owners took Barnum to court to file an injunction and have the exhibit pulled. But the judge, George Barnard, a notoriously corrupt and lazy individual with little knowledge of nor care for the law, threw the case out before the lawyers had even finished reading their statements. <laughs> On December the 20th, 1896, the Cardiff giant rolled into New York City to go head-to-head with Barnum's giant. Most perverse of all, Barnum's giant outperformed the Cardiff giant at an extreme level, with the Cardiff giant pulling in crowds of only a few hundred during its first few days of opening, whilst Barnum's giant pulled 5,000 on Christmas Day alone. The loss of profit to Barnum in New York was one thing. With luck, that could always turn out to be localised. But a more difficult situation was occurring in the background for Hull. Opinion in the press was slowly turning against the giant, and without Barnum's fame, there was little hope that he could sway the opinion by himself. Letters were being printed on a more constant basis, calling the giant out as a humbug and a fraud. Boynton, the original sceptic, was also back on the scene, chipping in that after a set of experiments where he tested the eroding of gypsum, he now believed the statue to be of a modern creation and had written to both the press and the Smithsonian with his findings. Fortunately for Hull, there were some papers who dismissed him, but it was a swelling tide. In late November, Professor O.C. Marsh of Yale University's paleontology department had inspected the giant and pronounced it a most decided humbug. In a last-ditch effort, Hull went to the editor of the Daily Courier and struck up a new deal. If he could keep negative stories out of print in his paper until the clause and the giant's contract ran out on the January the 24th, Hull would give the editor the full story of the giant's creation, the rights to pen a book on the story and share in the profits from the publication. The editor agreed, but it was only one paper and it could only do so much. In January, the giant's new owners hired lawyers to look into the contract and began selling off large shares of it to whoever was willing to pay the highest fee. It was a desperate scrabble to jump ship and to claw back an investment that had quickly turned south. And with every sale made, contracts were penned that made sure to make no promises as to the giant's authenticity. In what would be one of the last insults from Barnum, he hired Otto to create him another replica giant, which he exhibited alongside his first replica and called them the two original Cardiff giants. <laughs> On the day of the clause, the vast stack of cards finally began to topple. Hull, in his meticulous planning whilst creating the giant, 
had taken it upon himself to neglect one key issue, that of actually paying those involved in making it. And now, with negative press everywhere and sensing the time was right, one by one, the men came out to either get a slice of the money from selling their story or just to take a stab at the man who had essentially screwed them in business. At the same time, new giants were being dug up on a more regular basis than ever, partly helped along by the fact that Franz Otto had carved seven more by himself to sell on in the excitement. In Pittsburgh, the remains of an 18-foot tall giant were discovered that headlines exclaimed, put the Cardiff giant to shame. The owners were now looking for a hasty sale. Eventually, a via was found in Calvin Gott, the man who Newell would hire to take the original photos of the giant when it was on the exhibit on his farm. Gott toured the giant around the county fairs throughout America under the banner, The Giant That Fooled the World, until his death in 1870. Over the next few decades, the giant would go on to be stored away in tired barns and occasionally pulled out for exhibits here and there, including the Pan American Expo in Buffalo in 1901, but crowds were long since over the modern relic, and instead, it slowly turned into a footnote, settling finally in 1948 in the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, New York, where remarkably it still resides today, on display in the main barn of the museum. As for Hull, he had managed to drag the whole business past the contract clause's deadline and was, financially at least, in the clear. He even managed to sue the owners for losses in revenue for the sum of just under $20,000. Perhaps even more amazingly, he then went on to try to pull exactly the same trick again ten years later when he produced a missing link statue in Colorado. But what with his association to the Cardiff giant, few scientists were willing to get on board with the discovery and the press took an attitude of humour to the entire affair. He tried several times to get his book on the Cardiff giant published, but died in 1902, aged 81 years old, before any publication was completed. Despite all of the businessmen that he had financially crippled, all of the scientists that he had embarrassed, one who had actually taken his own life in the aftermath, and of all of the religious men made a mockery of, he admitted only that, I made many mistakes in the management of the scheme, or today, I would have been a rich man. When all was said and done, the Cardiff giant was a monumental humbug that Barnum himself would have been proud and was most certainly enviable of. At times, it can be difficult to understand the motivations of the men behind the numerous schemes that riddled the 19th century in America and beyond. The art of the humbug was, as Barnum would put it, all in the name of entertainment. For others, like Hull, there was the promise of vast financial gain and of personal mockeries to score, but in their quest to find either one or all, many people were sucked in and damaged, either making huge bankrupting losses or finding their carefully constructed reputations crushed. It was, in the end, a manipulation of the atmosphere of the day, but if the market wasn't there, and the people not willing to pay, it would never have become the phenomenon it did. Men like Hull, and especially Barnum, who embodied much of the worst of the American 19th century, also embodied much of the best. Bombastically outrageous, but equally disappointing on a social and human level, they were contradictory figures. The Cardiff giant had brought difficulties to a few, most who were looking to turn a profit, but it also brought excitement, hope and entertainment to the masses in a time when there was little to feel so positive about. Nearing the end of his life, P.T. Barnum summed up his career in humbuggery when he wrote, The noblest art is that of making others happy. It's a nice sentiment, but perhaps in 2020, it's more fitting to conclude with one other of his quotes. It is very amusing to see how easily people deceive themselves by being too incredulous. So that was the story of the Cardiff Giant. I thought it was a really fun and great story and really representative of the sorts of stories of that time. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. We'll come back after these short adverts to have a little chat about it. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. 
And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. So thanks very much for listening again. I hope you say, I hope you really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed writing this one. Really, like I said at the start, so I've been gunning to do an episode on one of these kind of humbug stories. And I had a few in mind and a few that I'll probably return to in future. But this was the first one that I went with. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed it. I say I, I did enjoy researching it. It was very funny. There was so much that I thought was funny. But at the same time, it's a difficult one. Like I sort of summed up in the, the last paragraph because Barnum, for example, P.T. Barnum and, and Hull, I mean, t- to refer to this story first, I guess we'll talk about Hull. Like Hull was not a good man, you know. Like he essentially ruined quite a few people, not only financially sort of, he ruined a lot of reputations. It, but, it, but it's difficult to damn him for that because he also brought a lot of happiness to a lot of people and a lot of interest to people and... So many other things. So it's it's hard. You end up with this kind of real contradictory picture of him and this real kind of unsure feeling, like, yeah, sort of contradictory feelings about, where, was he a good person or not? You know, was he a fun person or not? And this is really greatly, greatly uh, expanded upon with Barnum, who, again, like, probably like, screwed over a lot of people. Well, I mean, he definitely screwed over a lot of people. And at the same time, he wasn't, socially you know a very nice person he was a product of his time i guess we can say in that you know there was a lot of animal cruelty in his acts a lot of child cruelty a lot of racism a lot of prejudice and a lot of manipulation and essentially abuse of sort of disabled and unwell people and you know people who were slightly different so that, that's kind of what I was getting at when i said that you know he barnum embodied the kind of the worst of the, the 19th century but at the same time he embodied the best as well because he had this like incredibly like say like just massively bombastic fantastical side where you know he he 
paid money to build insane rooftop gardens on top of his museum of this, like, that, that was, I, you can only imagine was this, like, real den of colour and excitement in a kind of quite grey world. It had daily magical acts and cabarets and the freak shows on display and all the rest of it. And, and, and like I say, like, it, he was a product of his time, I guess you can say, but it, it leaves you with this real difficult situation where you're like, okay, it's 2020. I, I can't really say I find this man fantastic. I can't, it would be wrong of me if I just ignored all of the bad things that he did. But at the same time, I don't know, like, there is an element of kind of respect there for him. And, and you know, I, I like his quote, you know, the noblest art is that of making others happy. I mean, that's a sentiment I think we can probably all get behind, right? That's, I mean, I don't know if it's the noblest art, but it's certainly something, you know, it's certainly life goals, right? It's certainly something you want to aim for. It's, you know, making that those around you happy. So, you know, that's really what you want. That's a great sentiment. But, but yeah, at the same time, like, he kind of screwed over a lot of people to do that. So, I don't know, but I do. it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. You have to let me know what you think. Like, you know, am I, am I kind of maybe perhaps being a little bit kind of harsh? I don't know. But, um... Yeah, I mean, that, as far as the story, that, that's about it, really. I mean, there's not a great deal to discuss. Probably we'll be talking more, a bit more about kind of some of the other humbugs maybe in on, in the live stream. Um, but yeah, I, I should imagine we'll probably get more into things like, you know, the Fiji Mermaid and the... the it's, it's Barnum had like an awful lot of them. He had like the Fiji Mermaid, then he had the Siamese Twins and... And he bought a lot of them from um, London, actually, strangely enough. And he bought a lot of animals from London Zoo and things like that. But yeah, I mean, there are, there are say, Barnum, to get back to him for a second, he was twisted because I just remembered another story where one night he had a load of animals in a different ca- ta- cages and a load of fish in aquariums, including two whales, which th- th- when there was a fire, the tank cracked and burst and the whales just basically alive so you know he was a pretty terrible guy really but i don't know there is an element of me that just thinks the world needs people like that you know in in those times you know because it would have been a bleak period otherwise you know without someone like barnum to kind of have that kind of multicolor museum it would have been quite a bleak period i think you know what else was there not a lot really you know is, is barnum perhaps the the unconventional youtuber of his day or something you know like the kind of the guy that you kind of hate but at the same time you 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 know why they've gained the popularity they have i don't know i don't know interesting character a very difficult character and, and, a, and a very contradictory character i guess you could say so yeah that was kind of that so i hope you enjoyed it i really enjoyed it i think there is certainly like plenty of discussion to be had like at the live stream about it and i think it was really fun so we'll definitely be doing that. Like I say that's going to be next Saturday. So if you want to come along, that'll be on YouTube. We'll talk about it on all the social media as always. It's really fun. You can come along. You can get involved. You can either, if you don't want to come on the stream, because some people come on the stream and sort of come on the video chat and that's a free for all. Everyone's welcome. If you don't want to do that, you can just come and type as well and, and, and get involved that way. There's not quite so much pressure there. Everyone's welcome. It's a total free for all. So please come along if you want. That'd be really fun. And say, we'll talk about that on our social media. Um, um, and say, the Dark History social media is, there, are, there is links in the show notes, um, so you can find them there. Or, or just go to darkhistory.com and you'll find everything. You'll find all the social media links. We're on Twitter, Instagram, you know, Facebook, all of that. Um, also, it can't be sort of looked over that we have a Discord and pretty much everything is run through Discord in terms of figuring out times and things like that. Because obviously I appreciate time zones have got to try and suit as many people that are interested in coming as possible so we tend to stick out on like polls on discord every now and then you know like um what what time you know it will best suit you and and we'll have people vote and and we've also been doing because of this lockdown business um we've been doing a lot of film nights playing a bit of cards against humanity and the voice channels it's been great fun so if you want to do that come along get involved great fun anyway that's enough of that waffle thanks very much for listening I do hope you enjoyed it. I do hope you're healthy and well. And if you're not, I do hope, you know, I wish you the very, very speedy recovery and a smooth path. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for all your support always. Um, And just thanks very much for doing Dark Histories with me. Cheers. Sleep tight.